excellence doesn't need to be a time or um, the perfect page of a script or the A-list actor that's attached or the $30 million that you want to be your film. It might simply be a, a, an attitude. I managed to survive that shitty phone call, those crappy notes on the script and still find something positive out of it. That for me was a mastery of the moment. So it's about piling up those moments and if you can do that enough, that's where you'll get your outcome. Hey, it's Zach here and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. Oh, and one last thing before we get started. Wanted to let you know that there were some technical issues while we were recording this conversation. This is one of the few drawbacks of remote recording via Zoom. Now, listen, my team did their absolute best to clean up all the glitches, so we hope that the quality of the conversation is what you take away today and not so much the technical hiccups. So we appreciate your support and patience. With that said, please enjoy the show. I'm here today with Leslie Patterson, who is a professional triathlete, a triathlon coach. She's also a screenwriter and a film producer. You have won multiple awards, gold medals in triathlon at the world championship level, including you winning the Xterra World Championships in 2011, 2012, and 2018. You're also the co-author of the book, The Brave Athlete, Calm the F Down and Rise to the Occasion. And in a huge surprise twist, which we're going to talk a lot more about, you also recently won the BAFTA Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for All Quiet on the Western Front. You are an Oscar nominee in the same category. And if there's any justice in the world, by the time somebody hears this, you will call yourself an Oscar winner. Leslie Patterson, it would be so much fun to talk to you, but I've already run out of time just discussing all the things you've accomplished and all your accolades. So it was great to have you on the show. Best of luck. I'm kidding. Leslie, amazing, amazing 
honor to have you on my show today. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to dig into all of this, uh, all of this stuff with you, Zach. And it's an honor to be in your podcast. Well, and I just realized there uh, there might be something wrong with my podcast prep, and I might need to to re-record this because I actually I think I must have two separate guests on the show because there's no way that one person accomplished all this. So I'm, let me re-record this. Uh, welcome today, Leslie Patterson and Patty McGinty. That's right, good old Patty. So Patty, we're Patty is the reason I'm here. Well, we're going to talk all about that today. And uh, in order to kind of tee this off, I want to tell the story of how you ended up on this show, both from just my perspective and just so you have a little bit of a perspective on your end about how all this came together. And this is going to feed into some of the mindsets we talk about. Um, I am what I call a recovering perfectionist. As a very type A, very ambitious, very driven person, as I've heard you talk about, um, that often comes with perfectionism, OCD, you know, crazy attention and focus to detail. When I find somebody that I'm interested in having on the podcast, I do a deep dive. I do all kinds of research. I like to have like a few weeks or a month in advance. I want to read their book. I want to watch all their videos. I mean, it's really at the point where it's a very inefficient process, but it leads to great interviews. I have done none of that, and I'm going to tell you why. I knew nothing about you and your story as of four days ago, randomly scrolling through Facebook for five minutes. And there was this post going around that uh, went viral about how there was this woman that had run triathlons to earn the money to option a project for which she just won a BAFTA award. And it was talking about how you were both an athlete and a creative. Seven minutes later, you got an email and I said, Oh, for the love of all that is holy, you have to be on my show. 60 minutes later, you said, sounds great. What time? And here you are. So this is such an amazing and cool experience that I believe is such a kindred spirit as I am blending the athlete's mindset with the creative mindset, because I believe that you need both of those to truly succeed. It's 100% true. And to be honest, you know, I've been an athlete and a creative my whole life. You know, I, I like to say to people that it's almost like I've gotten half of my dad and half of my mom almost exactly. Because my dad, uh, he, you know, he, he's like your typical athlete, right? You know, science-oriented, numbers guy, you know, goal-driven. My mom is the airy-fairy artist. Um, so I've pretty much got this unique kind of combination. And to be honest, I've done both of them all the way through my life. And all the way through my life, I've been told that they are incompatible and that I should give up one to pursue the other if I want to be successful. So to those folks out there that said that, F you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you you were actually well known for your use of the F word, hence why it's in your book. I have watched several past interviews with you with the limited amount of prep time I've given myself, uh, and you have definitely lived uh, up to that moniker, and I've just decided that today we're just going to have the explicit label instead of the clean label because I want both of us to be as authentic as possible, and I don't want you to have to censor yourself at all. Um, the and this, this, again, is one of those areas that I think is so interesting because I, too, have kind of both equal sides of very much the athlete's mindset and the creative mindset. And I find they're constantly at odds with each other in my brain. And what I always tell people when they ask about my kids is I say that I'm a split personality and each of my kids got half. So it's kind of the inverse of you where my son, 100% creative, 0% athlete, my daughter, 100% athlete, 0% creative. 
So it's interesting how you were brought up where you had the influence of both and you blended the two together and have blended it together uh, quite well, I might add. It's really curious to see how one helps the other, in fact. And, you know, it took me a lot of my life to understand how it worked. And really, I, I came about this because, you know, when I started off in my athletic career, I had big aspirations to go to the Olympics. And I was in a, an Olympic program that was a system. It was a system in the UK that was a, um, had one specific way of doing things and one specific way of treating their athletes. And I didn't really fit into that. Uh, it was very much numbers driven, data driven. And I'm an athlete of heart. So while I appreciate you know, data and I understand it and I work towards certain elements of it. I'm really driven by, you know, the bigger uh, heart kind of um, ethereal sense of sport. Um, so I didn't fit in that box and so gave up. I thought I was a big fat failure. And um, through art, I rediscovered myself. And by rediscovering myself, find my way back to sport as a different athlete where I could utilize who I was as a person and my physical entities and my knowledge of sport and, and really excel through that. Um, but then equally in the creative world, especially when it comes down to both script writing and filmmaking, if you don't have structure as part of your routine, if you don't have goalposts as part of your routine in a world that is so subjective and so undeterminable, then you're you're gonna explode. Um, so you know, yeah, I mean, there's we could talk for hours about how I've integrated my creativity to sport and my sport, you know, into my creativity. Yeah, there was a, a quote that I saw that essentially cemented in my mind, oh, this person has to be on the show. And the quote was, I truly am the athlete that I am because I'm an artist and the artist that I am because I'm an athlete. And I was like, done, got to be on the show, whatever it takes. Luckily, you made it easy. Just know that I would have stalked you incessantly and endlessly because I'm very persistent. And luckily, you responded with my first email. Uh, but it was reading that quote where I said, this is somebody that I want to bring into my universe and the universe of my audience because I spent years talking about how to blend what you can learn as an athlete, the athlete's mindset, the psychology of an athlete, and use that specifically in the world of creative work, not just from the perspective of it's great to burn calories and have more endorphins and have more oxygen in your blood going to your brain so you can ge generate better ideas. That's kind of where it started. But then it really became about blending these two psychologies and mindsets. Everything that I read about the athletic mindset, I'm like, you could totally apply that to being a writer, an editor, a composer, or a director. It's all the same thing. Um, and uh, to give an example of that, if you'll uh, allow me 30 seconds, what I want to do is I want to read through the table of contents of your book, which is specifically geared towards athletes. And I've modified it just to remove the word athlete and tell me how this wouldn't perfectly work for somebody that wants to be a successful screenwriter. A peek inside the three pound lump of crazy, which would be our brains, tackling the flawed thinking around your identity. Hmm, I can imagine that some creatives would uh, need that. Building confidence and self-belief, the secret of doing, the power and peril of comparison, dealing with body image. I mean, you sure you didn't write a book for people in Hollywood? How to respond to setbacks, big and small, the incessant need to do more, that's my life story. How to cross the fear barrier, resisting the urge to quit, learning to embrace the suck. I mean, come on, 
You literally could remove the word athlete from your current book and release an entirely new book with all the same concepts. Could you not? And in fact, we've done a lot. My husband, who's a psychologist and now my writing partner, um, we've done a lot of talks for big companies. For We've worked with directors. We've worked with actors. Uh, it really crosses the gamut. Uh, we did not realize how potent this message was across every industry, every person, even, you know, when you're getting down to relationships or mother fatherhood, you know, all of those things. It's applicable to every. Uh, it's ground zero, I think, to how we function in our worlds, what it, regardless of what that world is. I want to dive way deeper into the psychology of being an athlete, transferring it to be a creative. There's so many great ideas in here. But first, I think we got to back up a little bit because, hey, if we're going to be great storytellers, there's a really good part of the story that we haven't gotten to yet. We know the end, or hopefully we know the end, which is recent BAFTA winner and fingers crossed by the time this releases Oscar winner. But we got to go back to the beginning of this specific storyline, which is, you can fill in the blanks for me, but give or take 15 plus years ago, you proclaimed to the world, I've accomplished what I want to in sports. Now I'm going to win an Oscar. What in the world? Like, who, who do you think you are saying that? Like, come on, that's crazy. I, take us back to the beginning of this story in your mind. Yeah. So, I mean, we had said... Uh, Oh gosh, where do I start? So I was studying, I did my undergraduate and graduate in theater and film at the same time as being an athlete. Um, I wanted to be in film. I didn't know how. I just knew I loved the medium. I loved storytelling. Uh, I got into acting and quickly realized I was not very good, but that's okay. Uh, so if you want to Google my name, I'm in some terrible horror films and all sorts, but please don't. Um, but suffice it to say that that got me into the world of screenwriting and producing because I'm actually an executive producer in All Quiet as well. And that's when we came across uh, All Quiet in the Western Front, the novel, and we decided to try and option the material uh, with my writing partner at the time, Ian. And, um, and, and, and we were successful. Lo and behold, nobody had the rights, which was shocking. And again, this is kind of the lessons I've learned along the way in my life is you've got to take risks. Why not ask? Why not take that step and give it a go? What's the worst that can happen? Okay, so someone says no, big deal. You know, no harm, no foul. So I think a lot of people see lofty ambitions and big dreams like that and think they don't have the right to go after it. And um, that's a, a huge lesson I learned in sport. And that first world title to me meant I did have the right. It taught me I had the right. Coming to California, uh, being a little Scottish lassie from a small town, um, you know, it gave me that confidence. There's something about the American dream that is untouchable. It does exist. It's a mindset. Um, and and the more people I was around that had that kind of mindset, I adopted it as well. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, with that first world title, I just, how I won that title, um, I was very, very fit at the time. I'd been in the sport a long time. It was a huge, huge dream of mine, obviously, to, to win it. But I came in, in, in triathlon at swimming, biking and running. I came out the water in pole position. I got on the bike and for the first time in my athletic career, I had a flat tire. And I really, truly believe that this was my time to win it. And that flat tire was a decision tree for me. It was, do I succumb to the shoulda, woulda, couldas, woe is me, it was never meant to be, 
Or do I just commit in the moment to fixing it, getting on with it, and doing every single second to the end? Because the worst thing in any career is to throw in the towel. But if you know you've committed 100% effort and attitude to whatever it is you're doing, you're not going to be disappointed because you couldn't have done any more. And the consequence, all the people that had passed me on the bike with the flat tire, I fixed it. I started passing back. I got into the run. I had to make up six and a half minute, minute deficit on a 10K run. And I passed the leader with half a mile to go in the run. And that was my first world title. So it was shocking, amazing, and an absolute nail in the coffin of this works. You commit every moment to the process. This works. And I took that into filmmaking. That probably is why I said that statement, because I truly believe that if I just worked harder than anyone else and committed longer than anyone else, then it would happen. So the, the two key words that you mentioned in there that, again, I want to make sure we cover in a lot more detail a little bit later are effort and attitude, because I know that's a big part of the ideas and mindsets that you teach in your book and all of your coaching practice. Uh, but there's a couple of key points in this story. And frankly, the reason that I even gravitated towards it in the first place is I would assume that especially people that are in the entertainment industry that weren't familiar with you in the uh, the athletic world. They can look you up on IMDb Pro and they can scratch their heads and say, huh, that's kind of crazy. Well, she's an overnight success. And there's a big, giant gap between, ooh, here's a book that I'd like to option. And now I've got a screenplay and a success successful Netflix movie and I'm winning awards. So tell me all about your overnight success. Yeah. So, you know, obviously competing full time, it was difficult to do too much in film while I was, you know, uh, all over the world. But I saw this project as being a, a really wonderful door opening and launching of a new career when I retired from sport. Um, little did I know it would be that long. Um, when we optioned material, of course, we thought, well, hey, listen, it's only going to take a couple of years, then we'll be golden. Um, but we went on this crazy journey, you know, all sorts of directors attached, you know, actors attached finance on, finance off, the whole landscape of film changed across that time. Um, so it certainly wasn't an overnight success and the amount of risk that we had in this project, you know, to maintain the option was several hundred thousand dollars that my husband and I begged, borrowed, stealed, raced to win uh, to, to, to get that kind of money. Um yeah, so it's anything but. Uh, however, because I was pursuing another career, I couldn't really do too much else on the side. So now this is it. You know, we've opened the door and we're doing it full time. So it's a very exciting time for me. Well, in speaking of this idea of it clearly not being an overnight success and having to go through so many obstacles and build the resilience, and we'll talk more about all the failures that you most likely endured, but the the one piece of the story that I think is kind of going around the world literally right now and was the, the key component of the Facebook post that made me say, you have to be on my podcast yesterday. <laughs> talk to me about one specific race and your need to win that race so you could maintain your option. Totally, man. So it's 2015 and I was heading out to a race in Costa Rica 
And I knew with my level of fitness that I could win this race. I knew given the start list and given how strong I was, that this was pretty much a guarantee. And the auction was coming up and we were like, okay, great. This is going to cover that. We're good for another year. Awesome. So I get there. And of course, the day before these kinds of races, because the kind of racing I do is all off-road. So it's mountain biking, trail running. And we pre-ride the course so we can understand the terrain, just like a Formula One driver checks out the track. It's the same with me. So the day before the race, I fell fell off the bike and broke my shoulder. Now, I did not know at the time I'd broken my shoulder. Uh, All I knew is I could not lift my arm up at all. I couldn't get my bra off. I couldn't get my hair bobbling. And I was devastated on multiple levels. Like, oh my God, we're going to lose the auction. Oh my God, I can't race. You know, this is awful. So my husband being a sports psychologist, we quickly pivoted and said, okay, how can I get through this race? How can I even just give it a shot so I don't feel like a total failure? So let's break it down. Okay, can you bike? Well, I can prop my hand up. I can use my right arm mainly to steer. If I come to anything technical, I'll get off and walk. Yes, I'll lose time, but maybe I can make it up on the flats. Running, no big deal. The up and down motion, I'll take a few painkillers, I'll be fine. Swimming, no fucking way. (laughs) So I could not lift that arm up at all. And my husband's like, you know... Les, you're really good at the one-arm drill. You know, you do a lot of drills and swimming. You could get through this. And I'm like, he's right. I'm just going to give it a go. So I got in the water. This was like the night before the race. I did a couple of strokes and I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to give this a go. Because what's the worst that can happen? I, I, I have to get out. I have to get picked up by a canoe. I don't finish or I come out way down. Well, big freaking wood. So I give it a go and I get in the water and I get through the waves. It was in the ocean. And uh, I head out on a mile swim and I managed to only only lose 12 minutes. But let me tell you, it was the most exhausting one mile swim of my life. But the funny thing was, is my husband's on the beach watching and there's all these spectators and they're like, oh my God, they give the they give out pro cards to the worst people these days because of course I'm <laughs> way off the back, you know? So I come out of the water and I get on the bike and I'm like, I've got a lot of work to do. Um, so I start picking them off one by one. Of course, there's some technical sections. I lose some time again. But then I come off the bike in second position and I'm like, game on because the running is my strongest. So I run my way to first and, and win the race. So it was it was just a crazy experience. And again, just like one of those lessons, break it down into small chunks and figure out, be dynamic. Think outside the box about how you might be able to achieve something and you just never know, at least give it a shot. Um, and that's what happened. So I won the race and we managed to, to maintain the option. And here I am. <laughs> so in your mind going through the worst of the worst, not only before when you realize I'm going to have to run a completely different race than I expected, but when you're actually in it, like you said, that was the worst mile you ever swum. It's very, very easy to just say, I tried, I'm done. I give up. I gave it my best. But there's always something that, like you said, allows you to to get into that gear and say, game on. And I'm curious in that specific instance, was it just the athlete in you that said, I can't quit. I want to win the race. Or is it I've won races before. It's no big deal. But no matter what it takes, I have to get the option. Or is it simply I refuse to give up? Like what 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 was the combination of thoughts in your mind that kept you going no matter what? There's a beauty in the suffering. 
And I think it's being Scottish. It's that Calvinistic sensibility that I grew up with. It's the underdog fight. Put me behind and I'm going to do better. I'm going to fight harder because I'm facing those obstacles. Um, And I think because I've dealt with so much adversity um, throughout my careers and in my life with things like chronic Lyme disease, a lot of injuries, a lot of pain, depression, anxiety, um, you know, housebound, bedbound, there's an immense amount of gratitude of being in the moment of just trying to achieve something small. Uh, And it doesn't matter what that small thing is. It might be a line on the page of a script. It might be managing to get someone on the phone you never thought you could. And for me, it was, oh my God, I can swim a mile, one arm. That's kind of cool. And I think I've just got a, a very positive outlook on life. I find a way to gain something positive out of every single step, regardless of what that is. And, you know, this is how I've kind of utilized those skills both in the arts and in sport, because I've had many a day where I've started in the morning at 4 a.m. and I've got a seven hour training day. I'm struggling with chronic Lyme disease. I'm feeling sick. I'm injured. I'm in a lot of pain. And I know I just have to get those seven hours in. How do you find something positive in that? you know, you find a way. Um, similarly, with many of the projects that I've done, this one included, how many no's you have to get through to get the yes. Um, and ultimately, I think it boils down to focusing on the process, focusing on excellence of your craft. And excellence doesn't need to be a time or um, the perfect page of a script, or the A-list actor that's attached, or the $30 million that you want for your film. It might simply be an attitude. I managed to survive that shitty phone call, those crappy notes on the script, and still find something positive out of it. That, for me, was a mastery of the moment. So it's about piling up those moments And if you can do that enough, that's where you'll get your outcome. Um, Yeah, and that exists on every level. Uh, So I I think I've just kind of done that my whole life. And I'm not sure how I find that skill. But even if you look back right at the beginning, um, when I was younger, I played rugby. And I was the only girl in a team of about 250 boys. And I dealt with a lot of uh, adversity in that. I didn't have a changing room. Everyone else did. I had a little toilet. It was cold. It was freezing. I couldn't even undo my boots because they were covered in frost. I washed in the bathroom. Uh, Everyone else had a hot shower. Um, All the boys laughed at me and pointed at me. And there was was a beauty in facing that adversity and, and having resilience. And what's been amazing is having a husband as a psychologist, you start to then dig into the neuroscience of how that actually changes your brain. And, you know, we call it neuroplasticity, how your your brain changes and morphs uh, given the stimulus that it's got. And there's a part of your brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, which sits right behind the eyes. 
And that actually grows and gets denser as we deal with adversity. So from a very young age, I think I realized that it's almost like a muscle in your body. And I've worked out that muscle. So now it's like I can cope with a lot and find a way to keep pushing through. And that's helped me in both careers. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. Yeah, there's so many things that I could easily break down into three, four, five 90-minute episodes in that one phrase alone. There's there's three things that I want to dig into a little bit deeper that we've uh, already passed over, and I want to make sure we go much, much deeper into the the mindset of an athlete and how you can apply it to becoming the you apply to the mindset of being a creative or a mental athlete. The first of which is the idea of breaking down a big goal into smaller pieces. Yep. The second of which is the idea of embracing the process and the craft. And the third of which is really embracing resilience as something that's going to allow you to become stronger and improve the quality of your future self, even if your present self isn't really appreciative of it. So I want to go to the first one, which is this idea of breaking goals down into the tiniest steps, because I feel like, number one, this is just an absolutely necessary life skill and mindset that nobody learns in school. There are very few people that teach it. Shameless plug. I teach this skill, um, but breaking things down into the smallest component parts where I first learned this. And by the way, as a caveat, have not competed in sports, even remotely the level you have. But my obsession for about a decade has been obstacle course racing, Spartan races, and now American Ninja Warrior. And I came into it mostly with a creative mindset thinking, oh, my God, I have to run this. 15 mile race and it's going to be 4,000 foot elevation gain and there's 30 obstacles and I could never do it. 
And then it was, well, what if you just ran to the next telephone pole? Right. What if you just get to the top of the hill? What if you just get under this one barbed wire, this constant resetting, like you said, built this resilience muscle in my brain. So when I would get to work on Monday morning in Hollywood, it was like, oh, well, dealing with a file that doesn't export or, a, you know, like you said, a nasty notes call. It's like, that's nothing. I was sprayed in the face of the fire hose this weekend. Right. So right. I really felt that that neuroplasticity taking over. So right. talk to me a little bit more first about this developing the skill, especially if you're in the creative world and one that's filled with rejection of breaking down an insurmountable goal into the tiniest benchmarks. Sure. So there's a couple things here. Um, what we know from in terms of the neurochemistry that goes on is any time that we achieve something, we get a dopamine hit. And that dopamine hit propels itself to motivation to complete the next one. So there's actual chemistry in our brain that loves breaking things up into small pieces. So that's why it works at a brain level. And so I think I learned the skill actually from my parents, uh, as you know, many wonderful parents or, or, or many wonderful sort of childhoods uh, will tell you that if you have the support and love and teachings of your parents, you can really achieve greatness. And my dad used to take me out. So when I was no longer allowed to play rugby, he knew he needed to kind of take me out and burn off all this extra energy um, that I'm sure you can see bouncing off the screen. Um, and he would take me out over the moors and hills of Scotland. Gorgeous mountains, beautiful scenery. But I would go out with him and a bunch of his buddies, you know, all middle-aged men. And I was always at the back. So it was just a wee thing. I was only kind of 12 years old at the time. And these runs would be, you know, 10, 12 miles in the dirt and all the rest of it. And he was like, don't tell your mother. You know, you, you, you. we didn't go that far. You know, we really stopped at so-and-so's house for a cup of tea. Okay, dad, okay. But we'd go up these mountains and I'd always be at the back. And one of my dad's best friends is a guy called Reggie. You know, they all had these nicknames. It was great. It was a great social. It was a community. And that was another piece of it, a community that really taught me how to do things. And Reggie in the back, he would say to me, I look at this big mountain and I think, how the hell am I going to get up this mountain? I'm exhausted. My heart rate's up. It's really tiring. I'm just small. Everyone's ahead. He'd say, Leslie, baby steps. He said, I don't ever want to see you walking. I don't care how small those steps are. You're going to run the entire way up. And you're going to do baby steps. I want you to copy me. And that was at the age of 12, right? So what does that tell you about how to achieve something? I was looking at these mountains thinking there's no way. And he said, baby steps, that's it. Small little baby steps. So I think there's these teachings that occur in your life. And if you really absorb them and you start to implement them in what you're doing, um, it really, really helps. So I had the, the, the teachings of both my mom and dad to help me in that. Um, so, so yeah, and, and, and obvious, I mean, sport is an obvious one to break down things, but I think when it comes to script writing specifically, that is so overwhelming when you are either adapting a material or whether you're starting from scratch with a spec script or God forbid a TV show, which is even more overwhelming. And you're starting with a kernel of an idea. How do you build it out to a full script? You can't possibly think about that end point. Because ultimately, getting to the end point of something that might be shot, even although it's continuing to be changed, even when you're in production, 
um, it's it's not a ladder, it's a cargo net. There's many different ways to get there and you can't always predict it either. So you kind of have to go with the flow of where it's going to be. And so I think what you do is you have to create your own system of how to break things down. So certainly when it comes to script writing for me, Research is the first piece. I love to read around, whether it's the world or the character or um, the concept. And I go down all these different little rabbit holes. Then I'll read scripts all, you know, in a similar genre. Uh, Then I'll watch films that might inspire me. So I have all of these different sort of things in this system and this protocol that I have. And that's the first step to kind of generating maybe it's an outline or the characters or the pieces like that. Uh, and it's trying to trying to really focus on not, not thinking to the end and being in the moment. And that's a skill that you have to practice. And my sport has helped me do that because when you're in a race, often you go through many phases where you want to give up, where you feel exhausted, where there's no way you think you can hang on. And you have to think moment to moment, um, especially in things like running races or in, in bike races where you're on somebody's. I grew up in a, you know, racing my bikes in a group of, of men in Scotland that were builders and plumbers and hardy guys. And if you got dropped off the back of this peloton, a bit like in Tour de France, that's it, man. You were lost. You didn't know where you were going. So you had to bloody do it and you had to break it up into a moment to moment. Oh my God, just like you said earlier, can I make it to the next lamppost? Can I make it to the next right turn? So I've practiced it my whole life. And I think that's why now I can look at any situation and say, okay, how do I strategically break this down and manage it emotionally, physically, practically? Um, And that, I think is is led to my success now, and I think we'll continue on. And uh, if we're talking specifically now about the second idea, the first one, breaking things down into small pieces, you alluded to this idea of also being present with the process and being present with the craft. Um, one of the the chapters in your book that, again, like I said, you remove the word athlete and it's applicable to, to both sides, developing Jedi concentration skills <laughs> as a writer this is a real challenge for creatives. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm going to embrace the process and I'm just going to do this five pages a day or how many words a day. But then the world is so filled with distractions that you can't even sit down to go from one lamppost to the next lamppost. Mm -hmm. So what are strategies that you've taken from the world of being an athlete to being able to consistently develop the habit of being a writer and embracing the craft? Because if you don't actually write the script, you don't have a script that you can sell that can then be right. rejected 4,000 times. They can then finally get produced that you can finally win your awards for it. You got to actually right. finish it. So what have you taken from the mm. athletic training world to becoming a consistent writer? Uh, stop trying to be someone else and be yourself. So you have to be mega self-reflective on how you work, what you enjoy, um, what situation makes you effective. And that's what happened to me as an athlete. I was being forced down a trajectory that did not work for me. It was not who I was as a person. So having the confidence to know who you are and being really introspective about that and then creating the process that works for you. So, um, for example, in sport, um, I love to be out in trails. I love to be out in mountains. 
one of my worst things is to be on the flats. I struggle physically with that. I'm a very small person. Being on the flats on the bike, I'm at a disadvantage. However, I realize it's important. So what we would do is we'd go through my training schedule and we'd, we'd, we'd kind of mark it up. We'd give it a value, a numerical number. Which session is an emotional 10 out of 10 in terms of what it takes out of me and a physical 10 out of 10? And we'd mark it up like that. So we'd have an emotional response to a session and a physical, what is it taking out of me physically? And we would create a rubric based on that, making sure that I'm never stressing one too much more than another. So for me, it's something that is very emotionally easy for me personally is to climb up and down a mountain a million times. I love it. I mean, it makes me so joyful. I can push myself a lot harder. What is emotionally a 10 for me is to be out in the desert with no one around on a flat, endless, mild road trying to work hard. So I would know that that's an emotional 10. However, I understand that I need to stress myself sometimes and it's good to put yourself in uncomfortable positions. But knowing when to do those kind of sessions. So that's how I would create a training program with my coaches based around those elements. And similarly with screenwriting uh, and with kind of filmmaking in general, knowing what works for you. So if you are not creative in the morning, but you're creative in the evening, how do you set your lifestyle up? to be at the best that you can be. Stop trying to do it in the morning if that's not going to work. I'm a morning person. That does work for me. Um, You know, if you like to be around sort of an environment where there's a lot of people busy bodying around, maybe it's a coffee shop, find the ideal location. Um, Is there a piece of music? Is there something that you watch to get into that headspace? When I am working out as an athlete, and I do this when I coach athletes, I'll break their workouts down and give them a stimulus each section of the workout. So for instance, at the beginning of a bike workout, say it's a stationary one where they're able to watch things. I say, okay, for the first 20 minutes of your warm-up, you're going to watch some kind of motivational video for you, whatever that might be. Maybe it's watching Rocky, maybe it's not. Maybe it's watching an inspirational story. Um, Then during the workout, you're going to get your playlist together that is perfect, new songs that get you excited and stimulated to really work through the hard pain cave. Then you get your reward at the end of that, which is your Netflix series that you're addicted to. And that's your little reward along with your little energy bar, right? So you break it up. It's the same with screenwriting or it's the same with any other process that you struggle to do. Set it up such that you have the rewards, you have the right stimulus to get the best out of yourself. You know, maybe that's a writing group or a writing team as well uh, to, to help through those tough parts. So again, it's understanding how you work, who you are, facing your fears, your weaknesses, working through them, but at the same time, empowering yourself through your strengths. So you've got to have a combination of both to get a success. Something tells me that you and I have bookshelves that look very, very similar. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing Mindset. you probably have these two books. Yay! Uh, for those that are listening, so we've got Atomic Habits, 
Got the power of habit by Charles Duhigg. You're talking about this idea of routines, dopamine, triggers, rewards. And I love how you've applied it not only to the athlete's mindset, but to the writer's mindset. And the thing that I talk about with my students all the time, and I work with writers, I work with directors, I work with a lot of editors. I always tell them that time management is energy management. And what you're talking about is, well, I could write for three hours a day, but the value of three hours in the morning is very different than the value of three hours in the evening, depending on your personality. So being able to manage your energy is one of those key things that, again, I've also learned as an athlete and a ninja and an OCR racer and have applied to the creative process. But so many people just try and hunker down and power through, and they're trying to write at the worst time of day, and they can't figure out, why is my face in Instagram? It's because your brain is saying, this is not the time to be doing this. I am seeking a distraction. And that distraction is taking me away from the displeasure of doing something that I'm either emotionally drained or I'm literally scared to do. So I've always said that time management is energy management. And that sounds like you very much approach your, your writing process and your craft in a similar fashion. Oh, 100%. And, 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 and the trouble is, is today we're faced with constant comparison. You know, so-and-so who won an Oscar, well, they do it that way. Oh, my gosh, if they do it that way, I must be doing it wrong. Um, so, yeah, you can appreciate that. You can learn from other people's ways. Of course, that's what you want to do. You want to constantly be learning. But you also have to stay, to, you know, stay true to yourself and what best suits you. And, and that is evolving as well. That's ever-changing depending on your world and your relationships and what's going on. But that ultimately is about being self-reflective. And I think too many people, um, they're too busy projecting who they think they are, who they want to be, impression management, without actually truly digging deep and saying, you know what, this is who I am. Oof, warts and all. Here's what is so ironic about that phrase. Right now, you're talking about this idea of being true to yourself. But as I alluded to at the beginning of the show, we actually have not one but two guests with us today. The other of which is Patty McGinty. Hey. What, what is this joke that I keep using? Describe to me who Patty McGinty is. So good old Patty is my alter ego. And we actually talk about this in our book. And we have a little alter ego kit. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why having an alter ego is actually a wonderful tool in your little bag to have. Um, from a neuroscience perspective, we know that as you adopt a certain behavior, we get, you know, different chemicals that rush into our brain, whether that's dopamine, whether that's hormones, uh, the power pose was the classic one. Um, but having an alter ego means creating a character of the person that we want to be, that has those um, behaviors, has those attributes we feel we don't have as a person. So for me as a younger athlete, I really struggled. I had a lot of doubt, you know, low confidence, uh, the way that I walked, the way that I talked. I, I, didn't, I didn't think I deserved to be there. And so we started to create this alter ego for me. And especially because I came from an acting background, creating a character made sense. I started to watch videos of specifically Conor McGregor because I love MMA fighting. I'm a secret MMA fighter. So one of these days I'm going to get in the ring. Um, I've actually written a script based around kind of a fighter because um, I secretly would love to play that. But anyways, so... 
my alter ego is based around Conor McGregor because Conor McGregor, whether you like him or hate him, he has this unbridled, and again, this is probably his alter ego, this unbridled confidence. No matter what, he gets up and he keeps going. He does not give a shit what anyone else thinks about him. And he walks like he owns the fucking world. And so I started to walk around, shoulders back. I had this kind of posture and I noticed that that he had this sort of stare in his eyes where he would never lose contact. And it was like piercing daggers. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to start to adopt this when I'm training, you know, just to kind of keep focus or I'm going to clench my fists or I'm going to start to do these things. And I built it out to the point where, you know, I would watch videos of him. I would start to, you know, kind of walk around like him. I'd wear things like him. And lo and behold, during race, it was massively effective. Um, I was in this mindset because it didn't have to be me. It was someone else. Now, the caveat to that is I was spending hours a day training as Paddy. Of course, that's not that pleasant for my husband when I come home. So I'd have to have like this transition. So for me, it would always be the stairs that led up into our apartment. Um, It was three flights of stairs. And for every flight of stairs, I would lose a bit of Paddy. So that was then Leslie when I came home. Um, but yes, it's, I mean, there's a lot of big performers that use this. I mean, Beyonce uses Sasha Fierce and there's a bunch of other top performers that do it too. But it's just a wonderful way to not have to kind of deal with all that baggage of who we think we are and go through years of therapy. If you just want a quick fix, um, it's a great way, you know, to 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 do that. Yeah, this is, uh, if we're going to spend any of the rest of our time on one thing, it would be this. I think this alter ego effect is so incredibly important for anybody that decides they want to achieve a very difficult goal, but especially when they don't believe that they they belong, right? So if, for you in the world of first sport, it was, and I've heard you mention in other interviews where you just, you're kind of quiet and shy and really nice and all of a sudden you take on this alter ego persona and we're like, man, Leslie's a real bitch, right? Like you've talked about how people have just had this, this reaction to you, but it was that switch, that mindset switch of just believing this is who I am and I can do it that had a fairly major difference. And I would imagine that in the world of deciding I'm going to go from being a triathlete to not only I'm going to take a, a, a try or I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to see if I can become a screenwriter. It's I'm Oscar bound. I mean, you were literally saying that over a decade ago. So what kind of a persona did you have to adapt when you're either in front of the computer writing your screenplay, when you're on the phone trying to pitch your show? Like, what was the alter ego for you to become the Oscar nominated and hopefully soon to be Oscar winning screenwriter and producer? Mm -hmm. For me, it was watching a lot of videos of filmmakers that I, I respect that are very intelligent, that approach a story in a way that is unusual and different. Uh, has a bigger picture, has a deeper essence, like Guillermo del Toro. I absolutely love him. I watch all of his videos. He's so profound in a way that is so accessible. So just, uh, you know, listening to a lot of videos, um, watching a lot of talks, reading a lot around that, just to be completely immersed in that world, to feel part of it. I think, you know, and I, I'm a voracious consumer of, of films and television and, you know, there's so much excitement for me to be moved by a good story that, that I can't even explain it. I think like you spoke about energy, 
there's an energy that comes from being moved like that, that catharsis that comes from watching something truly profound. And that, that feeling, that energy, that's what I'm after. And so I kind of embody that energy when I'm, when I'm writing and try and just kind of let it go and find that flow. But then the other side of it is being humble enough to know that you're always going to be learning, that you should always be learning, and that to you know continuously take classes, be around other people, confront your weaknesses, all of those things try and make you better. I did that in sport. I always put myself in the tough situations and I do that in my craft as well. So surrounding yourself by people that are, you know, up on that pedestal that you can really learn from um, is a huge piece of, it's what I love. Again, that mastery of the craft. I want to learn. I'm excited to learn. That's why I do it. I'm not sitting there thinking, I want to be Spielberg. That's not what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, oh my God, I love stories. I want to tell a story really well. And I want that little girl on the other side of the screen to have that feeling I had when I grew up. That's my goal, which is very different. It's not an outcome goal necessarily. It's a process goal. And that's where most people, I think, you know, lose their ways. They think too much about the end result. Yeah, and I would uh, not only second that, but another piece I want to add to it is I think you have to find the perfect blend of both. Mm-hmm. I think if it's just a process-based goal, yes. then you create the endless excuse of, oh, well, I'm not quite ready and I just I need to learn more. I need to write another spec script or whatever yep. it might be. But if you couple the big audacious goal down the road, you write that down, you proclaim it, and then you just set it and forget it. And now you focus on the process. Then you have the North Star to go to, which is the one of the one of the reasons that I decided at the ripe old age of just under 40 at the time with a, an award-winning dad bod, I decided, you know what? I think I'm going to become an American Ninja Warrior. Not I want to lose 10 pounds or I want to get in shape because I really wanted to understand the psychology of what it feels like to immerse yourself in a truly ridiculously life-changing and challenging goal. And what I learned is that if you just focus on the outcome, you're going to give up so fast because it always feels like it's in the distance. But if, like you said, it's all about the craft. And for me, it's all about learning skills. It's not a matter of have I achieved the goal of being a ninja yet? It's, ooh, I was able to get 14 times around the pegboard. Next week, I want to get 15 times around the pegboard, whatever it might be. Those are the little things that you get so excited about learning a new skill, learning a new craft, where the side effect for me is you become healthier and stronger and leaner. Mm -hmm. But it's not about the body image. It's that I just become obsessed with the craft itself. You can apply that to anything. Like you said, you apply it to writing. But I feel you really need both because if it's just I'm going to become a great writer, 20 years are going to go by. And oh, but I just I got to watch that one more video or take that one more class. And we use that excuse of perfectionism. And that 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 mindset is very much about fear. You know, you're scared of putting yourself out there to get the to, 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 to fail. You're scared to fail. And I think that that, you know, I was lucky enough to have parents that supported me through failure. Uh, But furthermore, I mean, from such a young age, my dad, um, you know, he would set up my sporting career. We'd really talk about those big goals. 
what what is your five-year plan? What is your 10-year plan, your five-year plan? He did this with me at like 13 years old. We would write it out. So I truly did understand um, what that meant. I just, I love how every stage of this recording today just exemplifies what we're talking about because logistically, this has kind of been a shit show. I love it. It's just, it's, it's, it's so perfect. Like, oh, every five minutes, well, this doesn't work. Oh, we need to switch the microphone. <laughs> ah, shit. Somebody's taking the room. Um, but to, to, again, it just, it, what this exemplifies, and I'm not even saying this between cuts, I'm now just going to kind of put this in the show is that while recording this, your microphone has been a mess twice. You've dropped out. Now you've had to switch rooms, but neither, neither of us at any point were thinking, gee whiz, maybe we should just give this up or try it another day. We both are just like, all right, let's figure it out. Let's just move through it. This thing's not going to be perfect, but it's still going to be incredibly valuable. And I think that the way that my brain is wired and the way that yours is wired is that, like you said, with the neuroplasticity, you just get to the point where the only thing you consider is what is necessary to move forwards. Not should I move forward? Should I try? It's just what needs to happen to move forwards? So here we are. Anybody that's watching is like, oh, now she's in a different location. Is this perfect for a YouTube video? Nope. Don't care. Right. Because we're here and we're going to make it happen. And I want to now apply exactly what we're talking about to get even deeper into the weeds of this idea of failure and rejection. Because I would assume that over a 16 year span from, oh, this could be a fun property to option to now being here and being on the cusp of being an Oscar winner. I bet you got a know or two along the way. And I would like to know if there were any points and maybe for you, there weren't. Most people have these. Maybe you don't have this point where you said it's not going to happen because that's not the way you're wired. But I'm curious, what's the closest you ever got to maybe this isn't going to happen? And what are some of the other major rejections along the way that happened to so many writers to help them better understand how to move through all of the failure? Mm -hmm. You know, We had just so many no's at so many different times. Luckily, you know, I had the partnership with Ian. I had my husband there. We always had to lean on each other. So I think having a support network of people to lean against when you're dealing with that kind of rejection. And how do you pivot from that? And how do you learn from that? How do you take their no and say, is there something valuable I can take from this that's going to help me get to the next stage? That's point number one. And point number two is evaluating what what that no really means. Um, Can you just throw it out? Can you just say, okay, yep, on to the next. So it's always that combination, right? We had it from big agencies like, you'll never make this film. This is never going to happen. Just give up now. You know, all of those kind of things. Um, Oh, man. Are you in this room? (laughs) <laughs> speaking speaking <laughs> of obstacles here well. we go again so yeah we had a lot of big executives turn it down we had a lot of I, I think for us it was really sort of the different strategies that we had to employ along the way about how to get a film of this nature off the ground because the landscape of film changed across 16 years you know there's no way we could have done this as a german speaking language film 16 years ago you couldn't raise the finance but then of course streamers changed that they wanted local content parasite winning best picture best foreign film changed it 1917 meant that world war one was a popular war to cover so every step of the way that landscape was changing so we had to pivot what we were learning was changing our approach you know do you get a piece of cast on first 
Is it then a director? Um, is it, you know, is it uh, the director that you get? Is it a producer? Uh, also, what, you know, being on the outside of the industry, which we very much were, we didn't have the inside information about actually, is this producer worth anything? Do they have access to finance? Are they full of shit? Uh, is this director worth anything? How are they uh, uh, perceived by the industry? All of those things. So, you know, um, just having to constantly learn and grow with that and finding new ways to approach it, um, that, that was key. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. So what, what was the deepest kernel inside of you where when you were up against all these no's, it was the difference between, well, we tried our best versus, oh, no, we are making this because there there's always some deeper why there's a deeper purpose. There's a story that needs to be t told, a goal that needs to be accomplished. What was it about this specifically that if you get all the way down to the core, it was the reason you kept going despite all of the setbacks? Mm -hmm. So upon, I think for me personally, it was with all the research that we had done, once you really read all of those trench diaries from the German side, from the British side, from the French side, they're so powerful. And that war was so massive and the lives that lost so incomprehensible what these men went through, you cannot fathom. What the mothers and wives and sisters and daughters went through, their entire towns wiped out. As you're reading and researching this, you don't want it to be forgotten. And one of the main storylines in the film, which is about the armistice in the last six hours of the war, we felt that was so powerful and it encapsulated every theme of the book and everything we understand about war, that it, we were so, we wanted to tell the story so badly, it felt like it was so needed. I think that, that ultimately was our spark. And so whenever we would get down, we would either reread the script 
go back and read trench diaries, going back and watch, you know, war films that we were inspired by to say that this is what this film could be. We're, we've got to keep going. And the, the reason I want to bring this up and why I think it's so important is that when you do creative work, if the goal is I want to win an Oscar, if you are not incredibly attached to the subject matter, to the story, to the impact that it will have on the world, you will either give up or you could also have said, oh, no, I'm still going to win my Oscar. This just isn't the project. Let's find something more marketable. Let's just create whatever the Oscars want, which goes against this idea of being your true and authentic self. That's why I think this conversation is so important for those that are writers or do any kind of creative work. I have basically built an entire industry. I filled a niche that didn't exist in my side of the, the industry where people constantly come to me and say, I absolutely hate what I do. I hate the stories that I'm telling. I don't want to work in reality television or whatever the genre or the media might be. And what you ultimately find is the exact same story for every person. I'm just, I'm not connected to the characters and it's not having the impact on the audience that I wanted to. And as a creative, we want to express our voice and get it out there and have it be heard. So it seems to me that you found that kernel of the story and this, the necessity of sharing it. And when that relationship between you and the story and the impact is that strong, there's no amount of no's that are going to stop you if you're willing to embrace the failure along the way. Right. And I think, again, it comes back to being self-reflective. What moves you as a person? Are you opening your eyes to the world and what's going on in the world? What do you feel is important to tell, to change, to have an impact on, to say? What do you have to say that's important? And whenever we're thinking of concepts or ideas, it starts with that kernel, that feeling in your belly of something that I just want to say. And it doesn't have to be big. This is a big story about war, but it can be as simple as um, obsession. What does that mean to anybody? I mean, I can relate to that. And a lot of people can relate to that. But, but if, if they can't relate to obsession, what does the obsession in one person do to the relationships around them? Everyone can relate to that. Um, you know, is it a, a story about fathers and daughters, about unconditional love of a parent? I can relate to that. I think anybody can. So I think it's always finding something personal in the story that you want to tell. And then you understand the the backdrop to it, the world of it. How is that interesting, ex interesting and exciting? Something different we haven't seen before or something that I want to learn about and grow from learning about. Um, you know, yeah, so there's so many ways to come about good stories and good filmmaking. But that kernel starts with something deep inside myself, I feel, is a message or something that I, I want to say. What I want to do to, to wrap up today's interview is, again, dig even deeper into this duality of you really have to find something that is true to you and true to yourself, coupled with the polar opposite, which is I need to develop an alter ego to push through the imposter syndrome and the fear and all of these other pieces that are going to stop you because we are no matter what the goal is that you want to achieve if you if you try to achieve something meaningful it's never going to be easy it's just not going to happen because if it is easy to achieve then it can't be meaningful enough so given that i want to talk about these two dualities and i'm actually going to uh steal this call for about 10 minutes and have you become my coach <laughs> okay. and i want to help somebody build an alter ego 
Okay. And I don't want to use it in a hypothetical sense where it can be helpful. I want to actually be authentic and true to myself where I'm struggling right now. And I want you to help me build the alter ego so that somebody that either is an athlete or is a creative or an artist learns how to build this alter ego themselves. So here's the, the general scenario. In the world of being an editor, director, producer, I I have very little imposter syndrome. I've always felt good about my ability to do the craft. I've been very successful at what I do. But as I talked about in the journey to becoming a ninja and learning the sport of ninja and OCR, massive, massive amounts of imposter syndrome that I have spent years chipping away at. But I want to talk about two very specific instances and how you could help me use an alter ego to overcome this situation, given that I'm probably going to be in it again. So my first year on American Ninja Warrior, I got uh, got the phone call, was cast on the show, traveled out to Tacoma, Washington. And all of a sudden I get there and I see all of these athletes that I've watched on TV that have you know been on the, the show and they're all celebrities and superstars and they're on the big banners. And my first thought is, I don't belong here. Who am I to think that is some, you know, guy in his 40s that's an editor for a living can be a ninja? And I kept thinking over and over and over, I don't belong here. And it didn't matter what rituals I had as far as stretching beforehand or breathing or whatever visualization exercises. I get up to the starting line and I fell on the first obstacle and I'm completely and totally convinced it was because my mindset was I don't belong here. So from there... I want to know how to build an alter ego because what I've also discovered about myself, and I know that you uh, spoke of something similar, when I was much younger, and even to this day, I've been really, really good at practice, and then all of a sudden, I'm in a performance, so to speak, and it would all kind of fall apart, and I know that that's something that you experienced as well, where anything that I was really good at during training You put an audience on me and I would just completely fall apart. This happened to me with baseball for years and years. I was always the the top member of the team when I was in practices, when I was in scrimmages. As soon as it was an actual game against another team and we had an audience, I would just endlessly strike out over and over and over and it drove my coaches crazy. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of been a part of my experience and my persona, so to speak. So let's go to the end of that first experience on Ninja Warrior. How do we build an alter ego piece by piece? So that the next time, and I've been on the starting line a second time, but let's presume that I hadn't been. How do I build the alter ego so the next time I walk up there, all those thoughts are gone and I'm just ready to destroy the course? Sure. So I think the first mistake is to get rid of all those thoughts because they're still going to come, right? That's point number one. And that's okay. Accepting that is step number one. But what I would do with you is I would say, okay, let's do some research. Research is really critical when it comes to building an alter ego. What people out there have achieved something in a field that they had no business being in, whether that's as an athlete, whether that's as a business person, whether that's as a, you know, going to going to space, an astronaut, there's millions of stories out there of people that have achieved something. Maybe, maybe it's somebody with no legs that were told they were would never complete, you know, X, Y, Z. You find four or five characters or people that really inspire you, that have gone that journey, and you learn their journey. You read about them. You absorb them. You 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 start to see the behaviors and the trajectory that they went on to find their success. 
And those behaviours might have been their routine, the things that they watched, the music that they listened to, the food that they ate, the things that they wore. And you kind of start to amalgamate some of the behaviours into your own character. And you name that character and you find a costume for that character. You start to build out behaviours just like you would in a script with a character that you're writing. You write a backstory to that character. Then what you do is you write your own narrative like you are the hero in your own story. And this is your origin story. The fact you could not get over that wall is your origin story. And you're living in your own film. And write how you see that film being, being in that character that you've now built out. And so you create this library for yourself of pictures that are going to inspire you about this character based off of this research that you've done. You now have a music playlist that inspires you. You now have certain poses or routines that you can do. But this takes practice. It's not something that you just, all of a sudden do this research, create this character, then you are this character. It's not. You have to practice it in everyday life. And it feels kind of hokey at first. You feel ridiculous, right? So you do it with your first training session for you specifically. It was in sport. But maybe if it is writing, it's, you know, your first line of a script. It's your first, you know, beating out of a story, whatever it might be. You create that routine and you practice it just for five minutes. And then all of a sudden it's 10 minutes. And then you really challenge yourself to face a fear. So maybe for you within your narrative, it would be, I am going to go to this race that I know has a ton of people watching. And it has people I know I know, and they're going to be there watching and supporting me. In fact, I'm going to go one step further. I'm going to invite some of my friends to come and watch me, to put myself in the most uncomfortable position. And again, that's part of your narrative that you're forming and the skills that you're building to cope. So you're finding your worst scenario and you're putting yourself in it. Then what you're going to do is you're going to look at your next race and you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to do as much preparation as possible. I'm going to take out any of the unknowns and I'm going to prepare. I'm going to know every obstacle I possibly can. If you can know the obstacles, often in those races you're not allowed. But I am going to practice everything to the point where I feel so confident they can throw anything at me and I'm going to be able to do it. So you kind of create this whole being and it it sort of, yeah, it collides into what will be a performance that you can be proud of. And that might not be next week. It might not be next year. It might be five years from now, but you're developing this process to get you there. Um, I don't know. Was that helpful, Lowell? (laughs) Not only was it helpful, but I had a couple of aha moments. And the the first one that I had, which I think is so important to this process, as you said, that it's not just about surrounding yourself with somebody else that's achieved it that you want to emulate. You are very specific about the kind of person. And you said, for me... I don't just seek out people that have been successful at the sport. I've sought many different sports, even uh, different industries where somebody has achieved something that they had no business achieving what they did, which then leads me to think immediately, well, 
duh, there's no wonder I gravitated to your Facebook post immediately and said, oh my God, I must have Leslie on my show. Because that's what I've been doing for years is surrounding myself with people that have achieved things when they have no business achieving them. That's a very common theme of the stories that I tell. Actually, I directed uh, and produced a documentary film about the first quadriplegic to become a licensed scuba diver. Somebody that has no business achieving what they achieved. And I never realized until just now how common a theme that is where I've now put myself as the hero in that story, achieving something I have no business achieving. So that, to me, in and of itself is a a huge revelation for sure. Um, And I think that the other one that I want to tap into just to close this off and then uh, I'll let you go because you're very busy and in demand. But there's a phrase that I often bump on that rubs me the wrong way and I want to get your take on it. A lot of people would listen to this process and they would say, oh, you, you just have to fake it until you make it. I hate that phrase, but mm-hmm. I'm curious how you feel about it and how it applies to this alter ego process. Mm. So there is actually some neuroscience behind the fake it to make it claim. And that, again, is more to do with um, our physical being, our behaviors having an impact on our chemistry and our brain. So, for instance, our posture and how that affects our chemistry, Um, you know, the wiring of our brain, that neuroplasticity. So, you know, to a certain extent, there is some element of that that can work, but it's not as it's not plug and play. You know, you've got to you've got to buy into what that faking it really is and you've got to break it down um, and you've got to build the blocks kind of effectively otherwise it's not going to work and it's not going to work across time so when I came across here um, as a little Scottish lassie into America into California into the world of confidence and I can do anything that was not me I mean I couldn't even in a line say hi there I'm Leslie Patterson I'm a professional athlete I couldn't even say that because I think I deserved it And so it really just started with me practicing that phrase and saying it to people when I first met them. And there was something to to that. There was something to that. I mean, the more that I said it, the more that I bought into that narrative. And the same works the other way around. When you are in a situation, I can't do that. Oh, no, I'm not good enough. Uh, You know, oh, I'm just a beginner. All of those things. Now, you might well be a beginner. I mean, I'm relatively new to this industry, but I have confidence that I have um, abilities, but I have enough humbleness to know I have a lot to learn. So, you know, it's, again, it's kind of being self-reflective about the situation. So it's not a plug and play, but there's something to be said about creating a narrative of where you want to be uh, and and kind of you know prying that open and starting to adopt some of those behaviors, and um, you know again as an athlete, right? It's like walking into a situation. Maybe it's uh, the local swim program. I used to get so nervous because I was not a swimmer about going to my local swim program. That was like we call it master swim, and you know all these guys. He just seems so confident, and the world of swimming is kind of there's a lot of arrogant people and. You know, it's just like walking in, shoulders back, walking up to the coach. Hi there, I'm Leslie. I'm interested in joining your program. I'm not sure of my ability right now, but maybe you can give me some information about which lane I should go in. 
you know, and kind of practicing that sentence. So the faking it to me was that I have enough confidence to be a part of this program, but doing it in such a way that is still humble because I know I'm, I'm, I'm shitting it inside, you know. So it's like an honesty and an authenticity, but with confidence. That's the difference. Yeah, and the, the honesty and authenticity, those are the parts that I value so much and why I why I don't like the phrase fake it until you make it, because especially being in California and being entrenched in the entertainment industry, it's nothing but people that are faking it with a total lack of authenticity or self or self-reflection whatsoever. But what I always like to say is that you face it until you make it. So you face that fear of, I feel I don't belong, but I'm just going to put myself in in any way, but with a sense of humbleness of, I've got a lot to learn, but I want to be a part of this and I want to surround myself with the right people. But the the final thought that I want to leave people with is a very small, but really important word that you mentioned, which is just. I'm just this. I'm just that. Well, I'm not a writer, right? And we're we're waiting for the world to give us permission. We want somebody, you want somebody else to say, oh, this is Leslie. She's a producer and a writer. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to believe that you can make this transition until you believe it first. Right. 100%. And, and believing in that, again, we'll come back to process. If you are working on being the best that you can be, if you're taking classes, you're reading scripts, you're watching films, you're working your craft, then you are a writer. That's what you are. So that the preparation, the focus on excellence, the focus on craft gives you the right to say that. So regardless of whether that's a writer, a producer, a filmmaker, a mother, a father, this or that, if you are working on being better And again, this is mindset. So Carol Dweck, I'm sure you've read her book. So it's, I'm, yep, there he goes. Mindset. That's it. I am not good at this yet. That's the magic word, yet. So that's kind of the mantra by both. My husband and I live by that mantra. Yeah, I'm not surprised at how much overlap there is in the things that I teach and the things that I believe and the things you teach and you believe. Uh, Something tells me that our paths are probably going to cross again, hopefully uh, multiple times. Uh, But in in a world of sound bites and newsreels and being cut off from your speech when you're live on stage winning your BAFTA, is there anything else that's really important for you to get out into the world and mention that we haven't already talked about? Be generous. Give back. Because you know what? I wish people had done that with me. It would have made the journey a lot easier. There have been some people that have helped me and I'm incredibly grateful for that. But moving forward, I want to help other people um, and create a community that is positive and, uh, yeah, can move other people into the world that, that I've been allowed to come into now. Well, I'm going to do my best to be generous and share your story as much as I am able to, because I think that um, people will be just as inspired by you as I was when I stumbled upon a Facebook post just a few days ago. And here we are recording. Um, And uh, whether you like it or not, you might have a new email pen pal, because I think that you and I may have uh, more things to discuss in the future. But at least for now. I want to be respectful of your time and the many opportunities you have in front of you. So to close out, if anybody wanted to learn more about you specifically, if they wanted to get your book, what's the best way to be, to build more of a relationship either with you or your previous body of work? Where would we send them? 
Yeah, so you can uh, check out my email address is les at lesliepatterson.com. We have a website, which is our coaching website, braveheartcoach.com. Our book is The Brave Athlete, Calm the F Down and Rise to the Occasion, or Calm the Fuck Down. I'm allowed to say fuck on this podcast. Yeah, you are. Um, Check me out on IMDb. I've got my information there. Um, You'll probably see me running around town if there's a mountain nearby and there's a wee blonde thing running up and down. That will be me. So... I love it. Uh, well, when I do my next semester of Spartan training, because I take creatives and I bring them into the OCR world and I train them for their first Spartan race, I often have guest speakers and instructors. Uh, if you're not too weighed down by all of your awards, I might just ask you to come be a guest instructor one of those Sundays because that would, would be a pretty amazing that. experience. I'd love to just come and work out with you, Zach. Let's do it, buddy. Where are you located? I'm in Culver City. Oh, well, then this is just a done deal. I train on the Santa Monica Beach at Santa Monica Pier. Okay, then you and you and I are going to be seeing each other a Sunday soon when I do some of my OCR training. God, what an honor that would be. Ditto. Cool. All right. Well, then on this note, I want to be very respectful of your time. And again, I cannot thank you enough. And I feel like this is the, the beginning of a, a beautiful friendship, as they <laughs> say in the industry. So, Leslie, can't thank you enough. And best of luck next weekend. Fingers and toes crossed. Thanks, Zach. Bye. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.